It is the 26th of January 1923. A huge Landolette motor car, the equivalent of a modern limousine but without the screaming hen party aboard, purrs through the streets of Glasgow. The 30 horsepower Daimler engine is whisper quiet, at least for 1923, but it's not the gleaming bodywork or even the appearance of the city's bigwigs sitting in the back seats that are attracting people's attention. It's something they're holding. The great and the good of Glasgow society, including the Lord Provost himself, are holding an implement that those of us over 25 might just recognise as looking like a telephone handset. If you're under 25, ask your parents. This Daimler isn't just a fancy car. It's fitted with something utterly revolutionary. Something that's going to change the world. Something that is now so ubiquitous in cars that you probably never even think to turn yours off. But in 1923, it wasn't even something that people had in their houses. It was for nerds, dweebs in sheds, hobbyists and the kind of people that you avoid at parties. These people pootling around Glasgow being gawped at by the hoi polloi are listening in to the radio. This is Scotland, a podcast about history and where we made it. I'm Michael Park. You could buy pre-constructed sets, but they were more expensive, but you could make your own crystal radio sets, and that's what a lot of the early radio listeners in did. I mean, in the earliest days, they probably were all scientific amateurs, or what we call geeks now. Uh, They would be the people who'd be most interested in tuning in. You'd be hard-pressed to call any of the listeners in in the Daimler that day nerds. And to be honest, you'd be better off thanking the hobbyists in sheds for their service. Many of them had returned from the First World War with newfound expertise in telegraph equipment and were looking to experiment with the things they'd learned. In the years and months and weeks before that Daimler is coasting around the city with its prototype in-car radio set, the airwaves in Scotland are far from silent. But there are no stations as we would know them today. I'm Graeme Stewart. I'm a journalist and broadcaster with BBC Scotland. And in my spare time, I'm a bit of a broadcasting story. Graeme is the author of a new book, Scotland On Air, A Century of Scottish Broadcasting, which is out in the summer. We'll put a link to where to get more information in the show notes. So you had all these scientific amateurs using the equivalent of what we would probably now call CB radio, and they would experiment with sounds and essentially broadcast them out into the ether so that other enthusiasts could hear them. That was the start of radio. We wouldn't call them radio stations, but effectively they were broadcasting. It's just there weren't many listeners. The quality of it wouldn't be great. There were all sorts of reception issues, even things like, you know, if cars were passing by your window, that would uh, affect the reception. Those listeners in, as they were known at the time, many of whom had spent small fortunes building high-tech radio sets, were listening to concerts being relayed via telephone line from London, and they sounded awful. The amateur radio enthusiasts, they, they put pressure on the government to set up a station that they could listen to because they did have these Marconi stations in England that they could tune into. That was a bit of a problem in Scotland because they were obviously, because of distance, more difficult to pick up here. So they did certainly put pressure on, on the government. It's difficult to know what pushed the government 
completely towards setting up a system of radio, but it was also as much the American influence. People were reading about radio in America and there was a sort of public appetite for it here. And obviously the radio manufacturers, the big money was pushing the government as well. So I think those were probably in the end the greater factors, but there's no doubt that if it wasn't for the amateurs pushing away at this, it, it, it might not have happened as quickly. For those early radio nerds, it was about communication. Wireless telephony was a two-way system, and its ability to broadcast was as much a selling point as its ability to receive. The Daimler drifting around Glasgow was actually able to broadcast back to the car, which was sitting on the stand in the Kelvin Hall. In fact, Daimler and the Marconi company had been experimenting with two-way broadcasting for a few months. The Times, October 25th, 1922. An experiment carried out jointly by the Daimler and the Marconi companies yesterday foreshadows an interesting development in connection with broadcasting. The possibility that occupants of motor cars may be able to listen to wireless concerts and conversations whilst travelling along the roads. Seated inside a closed car, one could plainly hear the talking from Marconi House, even amid the noise of traffic, though on the driver's seat it was rather difficult to distinguish the words. On the return journey, gramophone records were heard with ease, and the speed of the car seemed to make no difference to the reception. The apparatus consisted of a frame aerial mounted on the roof of the car. It was all very impressive, but radio as we know it today was far from popular. The enthusiasts began to pressurise the government to bring the radio network, named the British Broadcasting Company, which was already on in London and was made up of all the major radio set manufacturers up north. The paraphernalia of the receiver will be stowed out of sight under the footboard. Ear telephones were used in the demonstration, but it is understood that a loudspeaker rendering individual telephones unnecessary is by no means out of the question. But the Daimler company has a problem. They've been working with Marconi to produce a functional radio for their cars. And with the Scottish Motor Show coming up at Glasgow's Kelvin Hall in January 1923, there's still no BBC station ready to go. Nobody's going to be wowed by a silent radio. Trust me on that. They had done demonstrations at other motor shows and they wanted to do the same thing in Glasgow for the Scottish Motor Show. They had hoped that the BBC's official station would be on air by then. It was expected originally to be on air by then. But as things were delayed, as there were delays in setting up the BBC full stop, it meant that the Glasgow station was put back to March. So they had a bit of a problem when they wanted to do this demonstration. So that's why in the interim, Marconi applied to the General Post Office and said, look, we need to create a temporary radio station because obviously the BBC hasn't arrived yet. The Marconi company were given space at the plush Daimler dealership in Annie's Land, where they constructed a huge transmitter tower and a temporary studio. This would allow them to wow not only the bigwigs of the city in the roving limo, but the bog-standard punters like you and I on the show floor, with yet another pimped-out Daimler demonstrating the power of portable radio. So that's why you have this oddity of this temporary radio station uh, advertising car radios. But the truth is that it wasn't the people who could afford these early Mercedes who were to benefit most from the temporary station that held the call sign 2BP. 
When it began on 24th of January, it was immediately clear that this was something more than just a placeholder for that delayed BBC station. It was more important than any of those early broadcasting experiments. They thought, well, actually, rather than just make this a sort of facility for people visiting the car show, why don't we just make this a service for the community generally? So that's why it is broadcasting out with the times that the motor show were on, it's broadcasting in the evenings. So they actually got a a higher strength transmitter and were allowed to, to put out a higher power and actually make a sort of broadcasting service. 2BP's output was more like what you would expect from the BBC station in London, with news, gramophone orchestra music, children's entertainment, religious programming, and live music performances, including some of the finest names of their day. The steer, oh dear, have no lifelong regrets. You can soft soap an antelope, but an elephant never forgets. But why does 2BP get the reputation of being Scotland's first proper radio station? What makes it different from those other experimental stations that you could tune into? The reason 2BP I call the first radio station in Scotland, I read an academic paper that said, well, there have to be a number of conditions to be a radio station. And one of those conditions is that obviously you are broadcasting freely so anyone can pick up the signal. But secondly, that you have a schedule and that schedule is publicised widely, for example, in a newspaper. So what marks 2BP out as different from all the stations that preceded it is there were actually schedules in the newspaper. So that's why I call it the first radio station in Scotland. The reason that it was publicised, I think, is because, bear in mind, the BBC was formed in October, November of 1922. So by the time 2BP comes on air, Marconi is already part of the BBC. So it's almost like an arm of the BBC going in to provide an experimental radio station a few weeks before the BBC fully starts. In short, 2BP set the benchmark for what radio in Scotland could and would be effectively was a BBC station. The schedule was effectively a BBC schedule. The programmes they had on from the children's corner to the music programmes to the news broadcasts, they followed the format of the BBC stations in London and Birmingham and Manchester. So I think you have to see it in that context. And so, mere months later, the BBC broadcast for the first time from a studio in the top floor flat of 202 Bath Street using a transmitter that was 150 times more powerful than the temporary one that Daimler and Marconi had used for 2BP. Despite this giant leap forward in broadcasting technology, the BBC's new studio was impossibly simple. The Scotsman, March 6th, 1923. The artist occupies a small platform which has been located at the required distance from the microphone and the piano to ensure perfect balance of solo and accompaniment. After a few words of introduction to the artist, the station director will signal to the operator that all is in readiness. The operator will close a switch which will flood to the studio with light to indicate that the concert is about to proceed. A switch connecting the microphone to the amplifier is closed by the station director who will make suitable intimation for the start of the proceedings. Kathleen Garskadden who would go on to become one of the most popular children's entertainers of the 20th century, was on the staff of 5MG, another of Scotland's early radio stations that filled the gap between 2BP 
and the BBC. She reminisced on those pioneering days for a BBC documentary in 1984. It was great fun and of course very, very amateurish. We just went out and bought music every day for the programmes, brought it in, put fairy tale books on the piano and seized a book and just read. Well, I, I saw that the things were suitable, of course. I had a wee look at them beforehand, but everything was just done on the spur of the moment. I think there weren't any rehearsals just to begin with. Where were the studios and what were they like? The first ones were in the top of a flat in Bath Street. In fact, my father owned the bottom part of the flat. He had his offices there and the, the BBC rented the top bit for studios. It was just a big room hung with grey curtains which got awfully dirty after a while. And um, there was a wee corner window in the studio and the engineers, there were no lights for the first two or three weeks, and the engineers would look through the window and thumbs up when to begin and uh, thumbs down when to stop. <laughs> it was all very, very primitive and very amateurish. Today, it's so easy to take out that little computer that lives in your pocket and be greeted by incredible radio from all around the world. You can go from investigations of Colombo's influence on Romanian politics to the troubling fetishisation of cold-blooded murder. You can go from incredible, challenging audio drama to in-depth explorations of historical empires that would be impossible on other platforms. Hell, you can even listen to David Starkey spout conspiracy theories if you must. But before everyone you know had their own podcast, before Serial, before NPR, before the chart shows and the shock jocks, before the pirates broadcasting from ships, before the war, before the broadcasted speeches, before the propaganda and the bombast, there were nerds in sheds tinkering with crystals, church organists flying by the seat of their pants, programming an entire station. There were pioneers, making history, huddled round the one microphone, ready to change the world forever, so that I can stand here, in front of this microphone, and tell you their story. You've been listening to Scotland. This episode was written and produced by me, Michael Park, and is a production of Be Quiet Media. Thank you to Graeme Stewart for speaking with us for this episode. A reminder that his book Scotland On Air is out this summer. Additional voices were by Ashley Wilson and Aaron Richardson. The archive recording of Kathleen Garskadden is from the BBC Archive. You can find out more about the show on our website, scotlandpodcast.net, and we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and very occasionally TikTok too. Find us by searching Scotland, a Scottish history podcast. Look after one another. We'll see you next time.